in the hands of an angry God. Do you know who preached it? Jonathan Edwards. You are correct, brother. It was uh, in 1741 in Connecticut. It is perhaps the most famous sermon preached on American soil. A commentator on the passage before us took the liberty of reversing things in the title uh, to give us a very good uh, summation for what we're about to read. Instead of sinners in the hands of an angry God, he termed this passage God in the hands of angry sinners. Think of it. It's quite overwhelming, but that's exactly what happened. And it is recorded for us in this text, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. Luke 22, that's where we are, verse 63. And you will see, perhaps, the greatest injustice foisted upon the really only perfectly just one, God enfleshed. And you'll see it recorded here in Luke 22, beginning in verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody, they were Roman guards and also probably a smattering of temple police. They were mocking him and beating him. They were not allowed to, yet they did. They treated him as if the verdict was already rendered, guilty as charged. They treated him as if he was a convicted criminal when, in fact, he was not nor was that adjudication yet even formally made. They mocked him. They beat him. Uh, please take note of the fact that uh, our Savior did not live a life of ease. If you're going through some burdensome times at present, I, I just want you to know your Redeemer understands. He will never give you a message to the effect, get over it, or you shouldn't feel that way. I think instead he will compassionately say, I know what you're going through. I know what mistreatment is like, even at the hands of my own. I did not live a life of ease, though I had the Father's favor. You may not either. Please don't conclude that you don't have his favor. There are some today who would suggest that blessing only comes when you lay claim to it and have God's favor. The fact of the matter is, blessing comes by the grace of God. And sometimes blessing is in the form of horrifically difficult hardships. There are some who would suggest hardships today are a sign of your lack of faith. And you just have to speak over it. Uh, I have a real, real problem with that, especially when I look to the experience of the Lord Jesus himself. You must know that suffering is not inconsistent with sonship. So be careful. If you are a son or daughter and suffering in various ways, please know that the Son of God did not live a life of ease either. He can understand your plight. And then it says in verse 64, this is what they did. Furthermore, they blindfolded him. Asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? So they're playing a cruel game of blind man's bluff because they knew he claimed to be prophet. He occupied three roles, prophet, priest, and king. And so they're toying with him, who hit you, say they. Though it appears they're putting upon him and are calling the shots, in fact, that's not true. He never once had his sovereignty diminished, you must see that even under the most distressing circumstances of life, the deliverer, Jesus, is fully in control. So as to demonstrate it, they are only fulfilling what he announced in advance. Let me read to you Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 32. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered up to the Gentiles and be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. They are culpable, for sure, and yet they are only fulfilling, not what he determined would happen through them, but we, what he announced beforehand 
what happened through them because he has foreknowledge. He sees the end from the beginning. He's fully in control. Verse 65, they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. These are the ones for whom he died. And we are the ones for whom he died. It's all of grace, all of grace. It's quite an irony. They are uh, accusing him of blasphemy, and he'll be charged with it, and yet they are the ones who are the blasphemers, and they're the ones for whom Jesus will die. Verse 66, when it was day, it had been night. He stood the first trial before Caiaphas at night, probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. It's now about 5 o'clock in the morning. By day, the council of the elders of the people assembled. That's called the Sanhedrin. That's the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. It consisted of 70 members and one presiding president who was the high priest. A total of 71. They met at a specific place in the temple precincts called the Court of Yun, H-E-W-N, Yun Stone. We know its location even today. That's where the Supreme Court of Israel met. It was made up of various political parties, including Sadducees and Pharisees and all the rest. Their word was final. They were the highest decision-making body in Israel. They would sit in a semi-circular arrangement. Therefore, everyone could see the nonverbals of the others, you see. They could take cues from one another. The accused who was being listened to would stand before the semicircular arrangement of the 71. So they're getting together, it says, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, uh, saying, verse 67, if you are the Christ. What's another word for Christ? Uh, not son. Messiah. Yeah, that's it exactly. Messiah, Christ, same thing. Messiah derives from the Hebrew. Eventually we get to Greek. It's a long story. But anyway, it's the same thing. Messiah. Did you know in ancient Israel, even in modern Israel, it is not a capital crime to claim to be the Messiah. It's not a capital crime. Israel has had pretenders to the throne throughout its history. Subsequent to Jesus, there was someone called Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba, son of the star. He claimed to be Messiah too. Nobody executed him. They didn't bring him up on charges. Uh, uh, so, so, so really, if Jesus said, I am he, I am the Messiah, that would be insufficient to execute him. Blasphemy, on the other hand, is a capital crime in Israel in that day. So if they could somehow get the charge uh, of blasphemy justified and against him, then they could see him executed. So just keep this in mind for now. If you are the Messiah, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. See, they were not after information. They were after a confession. And there comes a time when he ceases to cast pearls before swine. Enough is enough. And so verse 68, he said, and if I ask a question, not only will you not listen to my statement, but if I ask a question, you will not answer. But, now he says this, verse 69, from now on the son of, what does it say in your Bible? Son of man is the title he takes to himself, quite significant, because it's a reference to Messiah. Are you the Christ? From now on you will see the son of man. Where'd that come from? Well, it comes from Daniel chapter 7, way back in Daniel 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. Daniel uses the term son of man with reference to the coming one who would be Messiah of Israel. Jesus said, that one of whom Daniel spoke, it is I. And then furthermore, he said, this son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That is a power-packed statement. It's a little hard for us to get it 2,000 years removed, but I tell you, they done got it. You know what he said? He said... The one spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 1, by David, I'm he. If you look to Psalm 110, verse 1, this is the phrase used there. You know what he's saying? The one Daniel spoke of and the one David, the psalmist, spoke of is in your presence. Yes, I am the Messiah. He's saying, I am the coming one, and I will one day be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, this is what that means. 
Though they couldn't convict him of laying claim to messiahship, because that's not a capital crime, they have what they want now, because he is essentially claiming to be God. He is saying, you're judging me now. But there will come a day when I, with the authority only possessed by deity, will judge you. What verdict you render upon me now is irrelevant. The verdict rendered upon me in the Supreme Court of Heaven, that's the one that counts. And the Father's verdict is this, come and sit at my right hand. It's the position not only of ultimate power and authority, but that one is in the intimate presence of holy God. This is a charge of blasphemy. You could not even gain entrance into the Holy of Holies, a special uh, room with limited access in the temple. There was a veil covering it. It had a keep out message. Jesus said, nothing keeps me out from the Holy of Holies in heaven. I am seated there. He is saying you could not even enter the presence of God established in your holy of holies. Only your high priest once a year on the day of atonement could go and there under threat of death. But I am seated at the right hand of almighty God. You see, I am God. I am in his presence. I will judge you. Now they have him where they want him. Now they have a charge, you see, of blasphemy. And they heard exactly what he was saying. Therefore, they said what they did in verse 70. Are you the son of God then? First he said, son of man. Now, in using this epithet, you'll see me seated at the right hand of the Father. They know he is laying claim to divinity. Liberals today say nowhere in the New Testament did Jesus claim to be God. Well, let me tell you something. I think the way the Sanhedrin responded to him tells me he did. I think the Sanhedrin, 2,000 years closer to the time of Jesus, know better than liberal theologians do uh, today, they saw him, to their mind, blasphemously claiming access to oneness with Almighty God uh, that uh, they didn't think he possessed. So they said, well, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, yes, I am. Or your Bible might say, it is as you say. It's essentially the same thing. Well, then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? Because we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now they have what they're looking for. By his own mouth, he incriminated himself. You see? Blasphemy. According to the law of Moses, he could be stoned. However, they don't want to do this. They decide they have all they need uh, to use against him in his own testimony. He is guilty of blasphemy. But now what they're going to do is hand him over to the Roman authorities. So you have a series of trials, actually, in two categories. Uh, some are religious, some are political. We're reading about one of the religious trials. It started the night before at the home of Caiaphas. Now it's in the morning by the Sanhedrin. That's all religious, in-house Jewish stuff. But now they're going to turn him over. It would be about 6 o'clock in the morning. They're done. They met at 5. They're finished. Guilty as charged. They want to hand him over to the Roman representative, Pilate, about 6 o'clock in the morning. They're done. But I want to ask you a question. Why do they want to hand him over to the Romans? What's up? What do you think, Doug? Well said. Hoping the Romans will take the heat for killing him? Absolutely. Anything else? Yes, sir. Dave. They want to kill him? Well, well, yeah, but why don't they dead him? Why can't they kill him? What'd you say? They didn't have the right to uh, execute capital punishment. Okay, so I want to tell you something. People hate it when you challenge traditional thinking. They just do. They think you're going liberal or, you know, whatever the deal is. I'm not going liberal. I don't mean to be a wise guy. I just want to tell you, I know that's traditional view, that the ancient Jews did not have the right of capital punishment, and that's why they handed them over to the Romans. But I don't think that's true. We could kill people. We did have the right. In fact, this is the way the Romans operated. When they subjugated a people group, Jews or anybody else, they didn't have time to mess with all their internal affairs. They just said, as long as the subjugated people honor Rome, we don't care what you do. 
Pilate didn't even want to hear this case. He said, it's a religious deal. Take care of it yourself. And just to show you that the Jews... Well, I'll tell you where this notion that the Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment under Roman authority. It comes from John chapter 18, verse 31. John 18, 31. Here's what it says. It's where Pilate, the Roman governor... By the way, liberals, again, who question the Bible, say we don't have extra-biblical evidence of this stuff. Well, you can go to Israel, and I can take you to a place called Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, and I could show you something called the Pilate Stone. They discovered it with Pontius Pilate's name on it. More extra-biblical historical support for the veracity, truthfulness of the biblical account. By the way, if you're redeemed, you don't need it. But don't let the naysayers shake your faith. Uh, 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 the Bible doesn't have to catch up with archaeology. I've been telling you, archaeology is catching up with the Bible. But anyway, they found the Pilate stone, which authenticates the existence of this guy named Pilate. Anyway, Pilate, the Roman governor, says to the Jews, this is John 18, 31, take you him and judge him according to your law. He's saying you take care of it. He's saying to the Jews. But the Jews, therefore, said unto him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And that's where we got the notion that they didn't have authority to exercise capital punishment. But that's not true. For instance, you ever hear of a guy named Stephen? He got stoned. He, he, the, the, and the accusation was blasphemy. It's recorded for us rather specifically in, in Acts. He was stoned by the Jewish religious authorities. And we don't have any record that they con uh, consulted with the Romans beforehand or that the Romans were in any way upset with this. Also, on several occasions, these very people, scribes and Pharisees, sought to kill Jesus. And they were rather public in their intent to do so. Surely they would not have been so blatant about it if they knew they had no right to, and the Romans would come down upon them. In one instance, the elders of Israel brought before Jesus a woman who they accused of being caught in adultery. You remember her? John chapter 8, remember this? They said... To, to the Lord. Now Moses in the law commanded us, commanded us that such should be stoned. What say you? Now if the Jews had no authority to put this woman to death, Jesus easily could have said, what are you asking me this stuff for? Aren't you aware of the fact that this is a violation of Roman law? You don't have the right to execute anyone. But he didn't say that. In fact, he said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And if it was not legal for Jews to perform executions, can you please imagine what might have happened if the Jews set up this scenario and it goes back to the Roman authority, they're actually discussing the possibility of killing this woman, if they weren't able to do this, surely they wouldn't have been so public about it. So I think this is what really is happening in John 18.31. They had no right to execute a man or woman unless the charge was treason, failure to pay taxes to Rome, sedition against Rome, or insult to the Roman king, Caesar. Then the Romans said, it's no longer a private matter. They said, we intervene. As long as it's a religious deal, you Jews could do what you want. We don't care what you do with your own. Kill them if you want. But if it becomes a political matter, an insult to Rome, to Caesar, something like this. It's treason. It's an act of sedition. So I'm going to show you in a second. That's why they changed the charge. You'll see. From blasphemy to treason. So that they can hand him over to Rome, as Doug, I think, rightly said, so that they don't have to bear full responsibility for the death of Jesus. Yes, sir, Richard.
Yes, sir. Now, Richard brings up such a good point. He's talking about crucifixion, it being a peculiarly Roman thing. He is right. Uh, Jews didn't use that. They, they would stone people. But the crucifixion thing they really desired because of the, a few things, the public humiliation factor of it. He would be publicly dis displayed as a pretender to the throne. All of his followers would surely cease being devoted to him. There he is hanging on a cross with this epithet, king of the Jews. He doesn't look very kingly. Also, it's in fulfillment, is it not? of prophecy, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. But we don't do the hang on tree things. Gentiles do that, Romans. Therefore, don't you see, though humankind is responsible, God is sovereign, orchestrating this. By the way, crucifixion is not a Roman invention. The Persians came up with that, Persians. But the Romans perfected it so as to elongate the dying process uh, on a cross. Okay, well, here's the deal. I wanted you to start getting a sense of the degradation, depravity, and deceit behind the trial of Jesus. And I want you to see it for a few reasons. One, he suffered and died for you and me anyway. He saw it coming, it came, and he let it. I want you to see, number one, his intense interest in saving and adopting us into his family so as to submit to all this. Two, I want you to see that he's sovereign in spite of the fact that it looks like events are in the way. And so to demonstrate just a little more, give you a heightened notion of the terrible injustice the only just one experienced, I want to show you 15 violations of Jewish laws of jurisprudence. If you had a book of trial law that the Jews came up with, I want you to see how they violated their own due process. So here's the first. Jesus was never formally charged before his arrest. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Suddenly they come and they take him. It says, now the chief priests, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 and on. The chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. They just took him. But nobody at the time formally accused him of committing any crime. This was simply done at the behest of the religious leaders who should have defended due process instead Violated. And based on the Bible, their own scriptures, there had to be at least two or three people charging a particular person with breaking the law. So I read to you Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. This is called the law of Moses. They had this available. To be a Sanhedrin member, you had to commit to memory the law of Moses. They could not claim ignorance as a defense. They knew Deuteronomy 19. One witness shall not arise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Where are they? He was just taken. Due process was violated. Second, an accomplice of his was used to affect his arrest. Totally illegal. The accomplice is Judas. <laughs> he was with him. He had as much access with Jesus, spent as much time with him as anybody. You can't rely on the activity of an accomplice to the crime to convict someone, uh, another one on the team, of the alleged crime. His testimony and involvement should have been stricken from the record, but it wasn't. Third, the merits of Jesus' defense were not investigated. There was no defense. Absolutely no investigation by the court. The Sanhedrin was initiated so as to determine the merits of any accusations against him. So we read again in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 to 18. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing. Then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. But they did not. There's no investigation that was done whatsoever. 
Do you know Hebrew law, some of you will like this, had no provision for lawyers in the sense in which we know them today. We didn't have lawyers in ancient Israel. No prosecuting attorneys, no defense attorneys, none whatsoever. You know who was to assume the role of defense attorney? The Sanhedrin. They were not allowed to bring charges against anyone. They were only allowed to investigate charges. The person was innocent until proven guilty. They had to defend due process. They were simply a fact-finding group to arrive at truth. But they already came to a decision about the accused. They were serving as prosecuting attorneys when their task was to serve as defense attorneys. Well, then who served in the role of the prosecuting attorney? Witnesses. Where are they? Well, you'll see in a second they were false witnesses. Can you see how they turned the principles of Jewish jurisprudence on its head? Number four violation. The arrest of Jesus was carried out at night. Why? Well, I think it was to cover up for their wrongdoing because they knew something. <clears throat> they knew this. Jesus brought it to their mind in Mark chapter 14, verses 48 and 49. Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber or with swords and clubs to take me? I was, here's what he said, I was daily with you in the temple teaching. And he said this, You did not seize me. Then, why at night? Because they're hiding their misdeeds under cover of darkness. That is a violation of due process of the law. Fifth, not only was he arrested at night, the first segment of his trial was at night. And Jewish law permitted, only permitted proceedings like that to take place during daylight hours. We have something called Mishnah. It's in existence today. The Mishnah, this is Jewish commentary on scripture and on life. It's been codified. You can read Mishnah today if you want, but it's ancient. And I just want to read you something from the Mishnah. It says this, let a capital offense be tried during the day, but suspend it at night. That's what the law book for Jews says they violated it. Why does it have this procedure? Think about it. Somebody's life is at stake. It's on the line. You can better examine if there's physical evidence by day rather than when sun goes down. Not only that, if somebody's life is at stake, better for you to have slept through the night, get a good night's rest, be clothed and in your right mind, alert and sound so that you could adjudicate the case properly. We don't need you drowsy in the morning or in the middle of the night, you see. So that's, that's what they did. His trial was held at night. Sixth, the trial was held before the morning sacrifice at the temple. Here's what they said. There was a morning and evening and midday sacrifice in the temple. You were not supposed to hold the trial before the morning sacrifice. You're supposed to get a good night's sleep, do the first activity of the day, offer sacrifice for sin in the temple. You're up, you're alert, you had your breakfast, you threw some water on your face. Now you can look into this guy's right to live or die. They didn't do that. They tried him right away. He was tried at Caiaphas' house probably Two o'clock in the morning. Then they get up probably five o'clock in the morning before the daily temple sacrifice is offered. They come to some quick rubber stamp judgment on the trial the night before. They already decided things at Caiaphas' house. They're just railroading this through in the morning. They get it done in less than an hour. Then they shuffle him over to the Romans at about six o'clock in the morning. Total violation of what Jewish law said. Number seven. The trial of Jesus was held before one of God's holy days. Not allowed to do it. This is what the Mishnah says. They shall not judge on the eve of the Sabbath, nor on that of any festival. But they were doing this during what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, otherwise known as Passover. You're not allowed to do it. 
You can't do it. And yet, yet they did. By the way, just to show you sovereign God behind this, they're culpable. They violated the law, but he had to die during Passover. Why? He's the Passover lamb. Don't you see? There's a reality, the scene, if you will, behind the scenes. Don't let what we see rule. No, no, no. There's a reality behind what we see, behind the scene. And that's the one where Jesus is seated on the throne, controlling all the shots. So anyway, they violate their law. Here's another one. Number eight, violation of due process. The duration of Jesus' trial was way too short. It's not allowed. Here's what the Mishnah said. A criminal case resulting in the acquittal of the accused may terminate the same day on which the trial began. If you don't have evidence against someone, the verdict is acquittal, boom. There's no time requirement. He can be done in 10 minutes. But if a sentence of death is to be pronounced, it cannot be concluded before the following day. Traditionally, they would wait three days. They render a verdict of guilty, capital crime. Then they would wait three days to execute the criminal. Why? Possibly someone will come forth with new evidence or information to get the guy off the hook. They wanted to err if they did in the direction of mercy, but not in this case. Boom, boom, boom. It's a rush to judgment. Number nine, the trial was not held before impartial judges. They, the judges hated the accused. They were not impartial at all. There was an incident which proves this. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 6. When he, Jesus, had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. It was a healing incident. Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they, the they, are the scribes and the Pharisees, these people. Sanhedrin. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So those are not impartial judges at all. They hate him. And Jewish law expressly forbade a person from participating in the judgment of another in a case of this kind if they were biased either for or against the accused. Number 10, known false witnesses were allowed to testify. This in violation of the commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness. They violated one of the Ten Commandments. Here's what it says with regard to false witnesses, for instance. Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and 60. Now the chief priests, elders, all the council, the very group we're talking about, they sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. A blatant, obvious violation of due process. Number 11, Jesus' own testimony was used to condemn him. Not allowed. You can't testify against yourself in Jewish law. Self-incrimination. You're not allowed to incriminate yourself. Why? People have different motives. You know what I mean? They may be judging themselves too harshly. They may want to die. You, so there was a Jewish law against self-incrimination. So here's what happened. The high priest uh, is interrogating Jesus. He gets frustrated that, with Jesus' answers. So the high priest calls upon God to witness how this Jesus is answering. By the way, that is blasphemy. But here's how it goes down. Matthew 26. The high priest rose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest then answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Can you imagine saying that to the living God? I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. See, he's calling for him to incriminate himself. You're not allowed to do this. Jesus said to him, it is, as you said. Well, then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? 
you see? He extracted from Jesus words used to incriminate him, and that is absolutely unacceptable. Can't do it. Number 12, the charge used to condemn Jesus was false, by the way. Blasphemy, claiming to be son of God. Well, it's not false if you is. And he done was and is. No blasphemy at all. Number 13, the condemnation of Jesus was unanimous. That is a violation of Jewish law. What? To get all these guys, 71 guys to agree? That's a no-no? Yeah, it's a no-no. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, well, first of all, let me read to you Mark chapter 14, verses 63 and 64. The high priest tore his clothes, said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned, all condemned him to be deserving of death. Should have thrown out the trial right on that basis. Case dismissed. Why? It was illegal, according to Jewish trial law, to unanimously condemn a person to death if there was no one called as a witness for the defense, and none were. Why didn't they call a guy like Joseph of Arimathea? Maybe he would have said, he is not who you say he is. He is the Son of God. Nobody was called to render a defense. Therefore, a unanimous decision of guilt in the absence of any defense witnesses rendered the trial bogus. Why? Because they felt like if 71 Jews could get together and agree on just about anything, not the least of which is the death of someone, without a defense, we want to err once again in the direction of mercy and throw out the whole case. But they did not. Number 14, Jesus' sentencing was announced in an unlawful place in Caiaphas' house. What? You don't... <laughs> the law said the Supreme Court of Israel could only render a verdict that stuck in the precinct of the Supreme Court of Israel, which was in the temple in a special locale, a room called the Court of Yun Stone, as I mentioned. It can't be in the home of the high priest. But that's exactly where they did this. And then the last thing I just wanted to mention is a violation of due process. The charges against Jesus changed a lot during and even after the trial. You cannot do that. Not in ancient Israel, not in the United States. With what is the accused charge? That's it. You cannot change the charges midstream can't do it but here's what happened first they charged him with some i don't know what you call it they got some false witnesses to say he said he's going to destroy the temple matthew 26 verses 59 to 61 but at last two false witnesses came forward and said this fellow said i am able to destroy the temple of god by the way he never said that he didn't say he was going to destroy it he just said it's going to be destroyed but anyway, the false witnesses said, he said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So the first thing that brought him before the Sanhedrin, first charge is, oh my goodness, this guy is a threat to our holy temple. Okay. But then you get this in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 to 63. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, are you the Christ? Son of the blessed. Jesus said, I am. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. So the first charge, he's going to mess with the temple, gave way to the second charge, blasphemy. But blasphemy is not going to get him executed by Rome because it's an in-house Jewish religious don't mess with our religion. You know, we can handle it ourselves. Rome didn't want to mess. Who cares about your religion? Rome didn't care. Just don't threaten Caesar. So now what happens? They go from he's going to destroy the temple to blasphemy to now they change the charge to treason. Luke 23, uh, verse 1 and on. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow. Now listen to the charges perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, 
a king. They know the conditions under which Rome will execute this one for them. They have the right to execute him under their blasphemy laws. They've done it before, but as someone said, Doug, others, they wanted to wash their hands of it and implicate the Romans. So they make it look like a political insurrection deal. The guy's not paying his taxes, and he claimed to be a king. What are you talking about? Caesar is the king? There's no other king. So then it says, John 19, verse 12, from then on, after Jesus was whipped and mocked and beaten, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate didn't want to mess with it. Pilate said, take care of it yourself. But the Jews cried out saying, if you, Pilate, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. See the, what they're putting on him? Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And on that basis, Pilate, who had better things to do than get embroiled in internal Jewish religious matters, was obligated to execute Jesus. He did. So he's impaled on a tree, and Pilate puts this inscription. This is the charge. Roughly translated, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. That's the charge. King of the Jews. And it became no longer a specifically Jewish religious issue, but an assault against the kingship of Caesar issue. Be warned, everyone who reads Latin, who reads Greek, who reads Hebrew. You can have your own religion as a subjugated people. We don't care what you do. Just pay your taxes and bow before Caesar. But if you claim to be Caesar, king, this is what you will get. And so he was crucified. So why do I share all this stuff? A couple things. Jesus loves you and me. This is the basis of eternal security. Some think you can lose salvation. I don't think you understand the totality of salvation. You think you could lose it if you get shaky in your spiritual experience, and you could. But what if your salvation is dependent on the unshakable love of the Savior? It is. He saw this coming by prophecy. He endured it over time. He could have at any time in the midst of any segment of the trial said, you know something, upon second thought, they're not worth it. This cup, Father, which I said I will drink, is too bitter, I choose not to. I'm going through this for them, for them, for them. But he never said it. You waver in your faith, so do I. You are unsteady, so am I. You are shaky and filled with doubts from time to time. So am I. You sin against God. So do I. Irrelevant. The unshakable love of the Savior is the basis of our unshakable salvation. Don't you get it? Those who doubt salvation are looking too much to them. You are missing what the Savior did. The basis of eternal security. Now, if you want to go out feeling insecure, that's your business. But I want to go out rejoicing, tickled to the core of my being, that this Redeemer went through all of that for me. It wasn't emotional. It wasn't impulsive. You know, have you ever been in a church service? You hear a song that really turns you on, and you're ready to become a missionary to Africa. <laughs> you know, then you wake up later, and you say, oh, but if I go there, I won't be able to see American Idol. And you start saying, man, maybe I wasn't called. You know, that's us. That's us. But that's not what he, Jesus did. This was not an emotional deal. This was not on impulse. He who sees the end from the beginning, who always was God, Alpha and Omega, he was born to die. He was born to go through all this. This sends me off saying, I cannot shake you, O hound of heaven, as someone wrote. Though I be unfaithful, you remain faithful, as Paul wrote. Though I sin, your grace surpasses my sin. Don't you see it? This tells me all that. This wasn't impulsive. This wasn't instantaneous. There was no knee-jerk response. 
He's in it for the long haul. Therefore, I'm in it for the long haul. Because he's my savior through it all, I'm saved through it all. Don't you see? And it tells me something else. At the worst of times, surely this was perhaps the worst of times in human history. At the worst of times, that savior is still seated on the throne, no? We're not going through such easy times today, right? It isn't so easy. Tremendous unsettledness, confusion, a fairly divided country, you know. It isn't so good. Take it easy. Take it easy. Jesus is still on the throne. It isn't such an easy time for Christians, you know what I mean? I mean, you come up with a goofball film about Islam and the world's ready to to go to war, the Islamic world. And our, and our leadership is ready to apologize for some video in the basement of a guy's home in California. What do you expect from California? <laughs> but it's open season on Christians and Christ. Sitcoms make him clown-like and us foolish in, uh, anti-intellectual country bumpkins for believing in the faith. It's open season, you see. I didn't say you shouldn't be a little upset about that, but don't take it personally, as we say in New York. Don't take it personally. You have nothing to do with it. And they will hate you because they hated me. What a privilege to be identified with Jesus, to share even in the fellowship of his sufferings. It's not about you. It's about the one you're identified with. I mean, all this tells me, I think we've been living a bit of a dreamlike thing in America as Christians. It doesn't cost us much at all to be Christians. You get up, you go to church, you do your thing. You know, it's, it's, nobody's resisting and assaulting. Do you know that's not the norm? That's an aberration. I think what we're seeing increasingly is a little more of the normative experience. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be prosperous and happy. No, we'll be persecuted. Yeah. All, all that's happening to us is that we're getting a little more of a sense of, uh, of what the biblical norm is. When you follow the crucified one and identify with him, you, you will be under attack. So don't take it personally. Don't crumble. Don't think it's the end of things. Listen to me. This one who is now seated on the throne is reigning and ruling invisibly from there. Just wait for the time when he returns, during which time he will rule and reign visibly from here. And the Bible says at that time, all those who oppose him, his enemies, will be rendered as if they were a footstool under his feet. This powerful one loves me enough to die and you. What a combination. He's not only the biggest, he's the bestest. It's going to be okay. But not because of you or me or whoever gets elected or a new political this, that, or the other thing. You're not putting undue hope, are you, in the political process? I didn't say you shouldn't participate, be intelligent, all the rest. I didn't say anything like that. Don't misunderstand. But, 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 but Politics, economics, that's not going to save us from what we broke. But Jesus has his will. It's really, really, really important to be in his embrace. He's not my friend. He's not the, co you know, the big guy upstairs. He's not a co-pilot. <gasps> He's omnipotent deity who can use even the degradation, the injustice, and the evil things of humankind towards his redemptive purposes. They are culpable, but if Jesus didn't die, you and I would be. Who's responsible for his death? Jews? Yeah. Romans? Yeah. <laughs> but they couldn't send him to the cross unless he chose to go there. He's the sovereign one. They will be judged. Sinners are judged. There's culpability, but he's still sovereign. Imagine a God who could use even an injustice like this to usher in freedom for people like you and I, and many, many more. Uh, do you notice what he said from the cross? Father, forgive them. <gasps> who? 
the Romans who mocked him and spat upon him, the Jews who tr on trumped up charges sought to his execution, the, the, the Romans who did their thing, and you and me. Father, forgive them. Why? They don't get it. They don't see. They don't know. He's all about forgiveness. Really good. Really good. So too should you and I be. We stand in need of forgiveness, we have it. And as for given ones, we ought to be forgiving ones. We're not permitted the luxury of hate towards a political administration, towards a people group, towards a religion. We're not permitted the luxury of hate. I didn't say go along with everything. Are you kidding me? But we're not permitted the luxury of hate. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To be safe in the arms of Jesus is to be safe and secure. Indeed. You can doubt whatever you want to, but I'm going home <laughs> in two seasons. And you know why I know that? Because I don't have a thing to do with it. If I did, I'd forfeit it. I don't have a thing to do with it. He doesn't lose those who are his. Lord Jesus, so we wow. We bow before you. I can't believe you. No, I can. And even believing in you has been enabled by you. What you went through, seeing it coming, is overwhelming. What a reminder of your intense commitment to redeem, forgive, pardon, and not only that, adopt us into your family. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for what you're doing now, seated on high, victorious, ruling and reigning, interceding for us so that none can bring an accusation against us. That sticks. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being sovereign, for being good, for being perfect in all of your perfections. And we look longingly for the time when you will step off of the throne on high, enter this space-time dimension once again, rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we around your throne rejoicing as sons and daughters of the king best is yet to come and until then though things may get worse it's surely no sign that you have abandoned us only that we share in the fellowship of your sufferings thank you for allowing us by faith to identify with you in thick and thin we would rather be on your side than anybody else's and oh god we accept the verdict of the supreme court of heaven with reference to Jesus Christ and reject the verdict of the Supreme Court on earth. You are son of man. You are son of God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. I want you to know I finished early. That has never happened. Please believe in miracles. God bless you. See you next time. Yeah.